Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they're going to show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So, we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. special episode of Fireside Breakdowns because for the first time in almost a year, Robin and I are in the same room. First episode ever where we're in the same room. That's true. You know what facilitated that, Robin? What? A little thing called a vaccine. That is true. That is true because we could not do this if we did not have that little thing called a vaccine. It is true. Um, we... I have been vaccinated for a couple months now, and I think you just got your second dose. Is that right? I got or... mine in March. March, that's right. Somebody, yes, last night. <laughs> I know who just got it. Wasn't you? Wasn't. Me. Um, but yeah. So, but as as more and more of the population has been vaccinated, uh, more and more of the country has opened up, and um, and that has allowed me to like get on an airplane and fly out here because this is also the first time I've been back to my hometown in. Gosh, a year and a half or something. It's which a long time. It is a long time. I try to get back here every three to three to four months. So, yeah, it's been a while. It has. And appropriately, this week we have decided to do another listener request. <laughs> yes. And follow up on the uh, the the first. COVID-19 Myths and Legends episode that we did with a another amazing breakdown of more myths and legends and conspiracies. Yeah. I mean, we decided to just focus on a couple um, so that we could really hit them in depth, but these were two of the most pervasive, I guess, that are left. Yeah. The, uh, they're the more, the newest crop, I guess. I mean... I don't know. We're going to be talking about the whole microchip 5G tracker situation, yeah. uh, which is a little bit... That one's been around for a while, ever since, I guess, vaccine development was announced. Right. It goes back a ways, but it's, as with all things, kind of taken on a new life, and there's always something changing always about something. it. And then uh, we're going to talk about um, vaccine shedding. And how that can impact people around you, um, things like fertility and pregnancies, and yeah, and what the data say about 
that particular situation. Right. And we, we kind of talked about it a little bit in our last COVID myths episode, um, but it bears more consideration. It's worth saying again. Yeah. And explaining in a little bit more detail. Yeah. And I specifically had somebody ask to go in a little more detail about how vaccines can impact pregnancies and fertility. So we're going to talk about that uh, for our listener request fulfillment. Yeah. Something that we are proud to do. We are proud to do it. That's right. Um, So I think we should just dive right in on that first part. Let's get talking about these... uh, these microchips and the 5G's and all the fun stuff with that. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about this 5G tracker situation. This is one of the myths that I have heard the most often, and that is that the COVID vaccines carry in them a 5G-enabled microchip that can or will be used to track people, or maybe and, as we heard in one claim, be activated to kill people, to kill the population in 2025. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, This one was a lot to try to break down. First, we have to determine whether that needle sizes that they use to give you the COVID vaccine is even big enough to handle any kind of a microchip. And then we have to know whether or not 5G can actually be used in human-appropriate microchips, and then whether or not that can be used to track people. And then I guess we're going to have to figure out how or if they can be activated to kill people four years in the future. I mean, this one's a lot. Yeah, this is crazy. Although in the sci-fi world that these people clearly live in, obviously, 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 yeah, microchips can be activated to kill people. Right. I mean, somebody's got a button somewhere. That's right. There's a big red one. Yeah. Um, I do want to before we go too hard on people. I want to put this up front. We kind of buried it in the middle of the last episode. Having questions about new medicine, about right. new technology, about the COVID vaccine, about coronavirus in general. That is that is fine. That's human nature. That is incredible. You should be curious about these things. You should question these things. Absolutely. So we are not we are not mocking people who have questions. That's fine. That's great. We encourage that. It is the theories themselves that are not worthy of much more than a laugh. And it is it is the way that people arrive at these things right. and believe in them that, that we find humorous. It's, right. It's um, confirmation bias 101. Yeah. It's great to have questions, but also it's great to put in the work to determine if these things that you're hearing or wondering or thinking are even scientifically plausible. Yeah. Which I think we'll, we'll find in a couple of different ways. Uh no, a lot no. of these things are not scientifically uh, current with current technology. Right. Not scientifically uh, plausible right. uh, if they're even possible. So let's start with this uh, this vaccine and 5G thing. Let's start with the size of the COVID vaccine needle itself. So the recommended size of a needle to administer the COVID vaccine is 23 to 25 gauge. So... That's about a third of a millimeter of interior diameter. Um, two or three strands of healthy human hair kind of braided together. That's, that's how tiny of a bore we're talking about here. The mini microchip currently being used in people or pets 
is about 1.4 millimeters by 8 millimeters, which is still small. It's smaller than a grain of rice. Right. Um, but those those of our audience who are good at quick math um, <laughs> would probably immediately identify that that is much bigger than the interior diameter of this vaccination needle. Now, just this month, May, engineers at Columbia University announced the smallest implanted microchip, which they implanted in several lab mice. It is 0.1 millimeter in diameter, roughly a grain of salt, which means it could technically fit through that vaccine needle, but here's, here's, here's the catch. It's so small that the only technology it can really contain is ultrasound. Ultrasound causes vibration, and at high frequencies, it can heat up and cause damage to, say, tissue, like in your arm. Uh, but at the lengths used in the device, or that the, the device would be capable of, it's in, essentially harmless. Instead, what these things are actually being used for um, are to monitor temperature. Yeah. Yeah, especially following medical procedures intended to modify temperature like cancer therapies that use heat to damage cancer cells. They are also exploring the potential for neural cell activation using short bursts of very focused ultrasound. However, these chips, they're not big enough to carry 5G technology. They're, they're just too small. It's physically impossible. Yeah. Um, so that, that's another strike right there. Now, there are very, very small 5G receivers in existence, uh, but the size of the receiver or transmitter itself isn't the only consideration. When it comes to electronics and sending and receiving information using them, uh, very often there are a host of other technologies, like a battery or <laughs> right? power generation in general. It's not always a battery, but also things like packaging. And they have to be included in the size of the final product. So you can't just talk about the size of the microchip itself. Right. It's what about the, the case that goes around the microchip to protect it from the very harsh environment of the human body. Mm -hmm. And to protect your kind of soft and squishy human body from what might be coming out of the microchip. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, speaking of power generation, 5G technologies do actually require some sort of power to operate. A pretty significant amount of power, actually. There's a lot of complaints from people who have 5G phones that it's really just a battery suck. Um, so in your cell phone, that comes from your phone's battery. But we know that batteries are, well, they're 100% completely poisonous to the human body. <laughs> uh, so in order to plant a 5G chip in your body and have it continue to receive or transmit signals, especially for like four years, if it's going to be turned on in five years to kill you, there has to be some sort of a non-lethal power source available to it. And we don't, we don't really have one of those that can be implanted in the human body inside packaging that is, you know, small. Small enough, enough to go through to that go board. through that needle. That also lasts long enough to power these things and produces enough power to power these things. Right. It, right. So we're, it was a good idea to start with. Um, but I think, you know, moving on as to tracking, right? So another part of this particular myth was the tracking element. As for that question, yes, 
5G can kind of be used to track people, and it's pretty darn accurate, but it's not because there's any sort of sensor or GPS in the actual 5G technology itself. It's because of the way that that technology connects to the cell towers. 5G signal broadcasts in a much smaller range, which means that it takes more towers to provide complete coverage in an area, and then every time that your phone or other 5G device connects to a tower, that connection is recorded by your provider, which gives them a pretty clear picture of your location and your travel path. And then if your provider sells your data, it gives companies marketing to you or a clear picture of the same things. But that's a whole other rabbit trail. <laughs> whole other rabbit trail. <laughs> Somebody's professional uh stuff was coming out there yeah i have thoughts and feelings uh-huh. um and so but aren't people already getting chips implanted in them all over the world right yes people are getting chips implanted in them they're not 5g but they are happening and you know some people are really enjoying them they're super useful and great for things like opening doors well a door because those chips are RFID tags. They're not 5G or 4G or any sort of G. They're RFID, which is just a radio frequency ID tag. And they store a specific and static set of information that can be read and either provide that data back like a pet's microchip or provide some sort of authentication. So some people do get chips implanted in their body and they use them to like open their garage doors or (laughs) (laughs) access doors at the office that are controlled by RFID readers. Uh, But the information on these chips isn't dynamic. So basically once it's there, it's there. The kinds of RFID tags that are already being implanted in humans, um, they use something called a passive power system, which means that power generation for these things are pretty simple. Um, they're activated, the power are activated by radio waves of whatever external device they are attempting to communicate with. Um, so for a garage door, the, the power grid of the city is powering the RFID transmitter and receptor, um, that is communicating with the implanted RFID chip. And so... The chip itself doesn't require an onboard battery. Basically, the signal coming from the receptor activates enough juice in the chip for it to communicate what it needs to communicate and then open the garage door. Yeah. And it's very simple core. That's not a lot of power. It's, no, it's, it's not a lot of information. Yeah, it's a very, very small amount of information and a very small amount of power. Um, so yeah, they don't have a battery. However, they, they also only have really short transmission ranges Yeah, and they can only communicate again, that very specific information stored on the tag and only when the tag is engaged by the reading device. So it's not just sitting there always transmitting. It's not like if you're at work, your RFID tag that you had implanted is going to be just emitting signals. Right. Because its power source is still at home by your garage door. Yeah, it's not just sitting there like pinging like you kind of think yeah. of on a tracker. It's not doing that. Yeah. So can can they be used as trackers? Sure, technically. Yes. But that's so much effort. <laughs> right. It's so much effort. 
again, these the, they only stored that very particular set of data, which is like a garage door code in the example that we're talking about. It, it It's a, a key to unlock your garage. So that data would have to be some sort of unique identifier for each person who received a chip. And then there would have to be just so many receivers, a whole network of receivers. The transmission range on, on these passive tags range from a few inches to like 35 feet. So at best, you would have to have a new transmitter and receiver every 35 feet. Right. Like I have driveways that would, like I've lived in a house with a driveway that would require like five or six transmitter and receivers just to track me down my driveway. Right. That is a massive infrastructure investment and would be obvious to anybody uh, who was looking around for nefarious activity. Right. It, I mean, it just makes it really like impractical to try to track anybody in any meaningful way. Yeah. And then to try to track as many people as are getting this vaccine in any meaningful way, that just doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a very high, uh, high amount of effort to solve a problem in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Especially when, you know, most people are carrying their phones around. And I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, like guys. Like with location services on 90% of the time. You're being tracked already. It's through your cell phone. Yeah. 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 If, you, if you're playing Pokemon Go, the government knows where you are. That's, sorry. Yeah. And or if you don't have a cell phone, most likely your car's telematics are telling people where you are. Yeah. So... You're being tracked a million different ways. Right. It's The vaccine is just really not going to change a whole lot for anybody. Well, there's no need to do it. Right. There's no need. <laughs> oh, okay. So we did talk earlier about the ultrasound chip. Right. Which is um, like the only tech that a chip of the size that could fit through the needle could right, carry. Right. And I just hear somebody out there that's like, oh, but can you track people with ultrasound technology? Yes. In a way. Ultrasound can kind of be used for location tracking, but honestly, it's less like tracking and it's more like geofencing. Like, uh, oh, this is going to sound awful, but like when you go somewhere and then you open Snapchat and it's got like custom Snapchat filters and you're like, oh, how did you know that I was at this Nelly concert? And you gave me this filter that has a bandaid that puts it on my face. I know I'm dating myself. It's fine. Wow. But it's it's because of something like that. That's called geofencing. And basically it just identifies when a device is in a certain place. Not whose device it is, not what they like to do with that device, just that the device is there. It doesn't carry any identifiable information. But devices that are looking for ultrasound signals can identify when something emitting an ultrasonic signal is present in a room. It would be like a teacher taking attendance in class, but instead of calling individual names, they just shout, students! And then every student in the room responded, here! <laughs> right? Like, the teacher would know that there were students in the room, but if they didn't, like, they wouldn't know which ones were in the room. They would just know kids were there. So if somebody was going to try to track you with that grain of salt-sized ultrasound implant that we talked about earlier, you basically would just show up as a radar blip, on their screen it they would just be like oh that is ultrasound so i guess that kind of leads us to this final question the final part of this particular myth 
can these chips be activated a few years in the future to kill people? Um, I mean, I, I really didn't even know how to start researching Yeah, this. I know. Like, dear Google. <laughs> dear Google. So I figured that the only way out of this was to kind of try to logic through it. So the basis of this assertion has to be that there is some sort of program or technology stored on these chips that would, in the long or the short term, cause some significant damage to the body after they've been activated. Uh, but considering like, what we just talked about with RFID tags, that they only store data, not like executable programs, right. it would essentially be impossible to trigger them in any way that would cause harm. And uh, the same kind of with ultrasound, it just is kind of blippy. You'd have to get it to superheat in such a way that it could cause massive damage, but something the size of a grain of salt isn't really going to be able to superheat enough tissue to do anything other than... Be mildly uncomfortable. Really bug you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they don't emit like any, you know, high frequency radiation or yeah. cyanide. I don't... Well, like, it's I don't also... It's know. like it's in... It'd be one thing, I guess, if we got the injection in our brain, right. right? That could cause damage, but it's it's in your shoulder. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the fact that these that these chips like don't migrate. Yeah, I was gonna. It's as good of a time as any to bring it up, but I think there's a, a just a general misconception about what happens when you get a vaccine. I think people, I. I when people talk about it and these things, they talk about it moving around in your bloodstream, right? Or, or as if the injection site somehow puts something in your body that can then migrate around. Right. And that's not how the human body mm -hmm. works. You're not, you can't put something in the muscle bed of your shoulder, in the muscle itself of your shoulder, and then it ends up in your bloodstream. Right. It, it just doesn't work like that. It would be, you'd have to inject something into the vascular system. Right. And that doesn't happen. Yeah. Not, not on any kind of scale like this. Like when people get the RFID tags implanted in them, it's usually in like the squishy part between their thumb and their forefinger. Mm -hmm. And it just stays there because your body doesn't like foreign objects. Yeah. So it just like, builds this scar tissue capsule around it and it's like we're just gonna keep it right here yeah where it can't hurt us yeah and that's like and that's the thing two things happen with a, with a foreign body in your flesh either it encapsulates it like you said uh or it tries to push it back out yeah which is i mean eventually i would imagine even the RFID chip would get pushed to the surface of the skin. The whole right. scar tissue capsule would as your body cycles and rebuilds. Yeah. Um, it happens sometimes with shrapnel from explosions. Um, people will find bits of metal protruding out of the skin and pull them out years later, or it'll be encapsulated and buried in their, you know, in their muscle bed years later. Um, but it doesn't just like, you don't take a BB in the shoulder and then suddenly it's in your big toe like that's just it doesn't circulate the body right yeah it just so aside from that you know little bunny trail that we had to go down that's just not it's not possible it's not that's not how it works you can't trigger these things to like 
emit something that's going to spread throughout the human body and then cause us to die. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, 5G chips, they don't store any data. Like, they're not a data storage function. Right. They're not memory. That's not a hard drive. Right. They facilitate a data connection. The things in your device that need data connect through that to a tower. Like, it's just a, a funnel, basically. So in order for there to be any sort of a death button attached to something to do with 5G, there would have to be much more to that chip or that little package than that 5G transmitter or receiver. There would have to be something for it to facilitate a data connection to. And then we're getting back to the issue of like trying to pack all of that technology into something that's three hairs wide. Yeah, there's a size constraint. Yeah. It's just... It's just a non-starter. Yeah, there's so many physical impossibilities as well as logical like improbabilities. Again, yeah. if, if the government wanted to track you, they would just look at your cell phone data. Yeah, there are this, so this system many exists already. much easier ways to do that. Yeah. The idea that... That it would take some sort of a vaccine to implant everybody with something to track them and or kill them just scientifically is not there. Yeah. It's just it, logically it's also an investment, like a literal monetary investment, again, yeah. to solve a problem that's already solved. Right. So. And we, I, we did not even get into the rabbit trail of Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did I just, hear, just... though, somebody the other day say that. They believe that the reason that Bill and Melinda Gates are getting divorced is because Melinda knows and cannot live with the fact that Bill Gates is microchipping everybody <laughs> through this vaccine. It doesn't um, have anything to do with the affair that he had. Or yeah, I, I mean, my I guess know. is that it has a lot to do with two very rich people and a lot of idle time. Yeah. I mean, that's just... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyways, anyways, I'm just going to put this out there. If somebody wanted to kill you, um, and they were already injecting something into your body. Yeah. The easiest thing to do would just be to inject poison. Yeah. It's way cheaper than wasting a bunch of money on 5G tech. Right. And, um, the idea that we would wait four years after a pandemic to suddenly to call the population. Yeah, why 2025? Like, what's right? the what's the deal with that date? And also, why if we wanted to call the population, why wouldn't we just let the pandemic right? run rampant? But then I guess this would be the same group of people who believe that this is not actually deadly. Right. Yeah. So also maybe maybe that thought process is that they have to give us a vaccine, quote unquote, for something that is not actually deadly. In order to kill us in a few years. I, I, that makes my brain hurt. Again, conspiracies are great because from uh, like when you step back and look at them, they just, it's so complicated for something yeah. that doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. The end goal doesn't make sense. There are way easier ways to achieve right. the things that people think these conspiracies are trying to do. Right. Um, which brings me to my probable. Probably my favorite yes. conspiracy that we have done uh, to this point, and that is vaccine shedding. Yes. So, what is introduce this one for us? Okay. Okay. 
I think that I know why this one's your favorite, and I think it's because it means that we have like made a full and complete loop in this conspiracy thinking. Yeah, it is, that's definitely part of it. <laughs> right? So you, if you are listening, you will... Well, no, not if you are listening. Those of you listening will probably remember this very vocal crowd of people who absolutely refused to wear masks, like, the whole time. Because, well, for a whole slew of reasons. Like, the masks not being effective at stopping the transmission of the coronavirus. Which, have we got a podcast for you? It's ours. Like, a few weeks ago, we talk all about masks and why they do actually work. So, if you have any questions or concerns about that, you could totally go back and listen to that. No big deal. Um, Or the people who say that masks trap carbon dioxide and virus particles, like, right in front of your face thereby causing your viral load to go up and increasing the chances of you actually getting sick or causing carbon dioxide poisoning, or that masks are really just the government conditioning the brainless masses to obey. Yeah, they had so many reasons for not wearing a mask. And all of them really stemmed from a poor understanding of science and a lack of critical thinking. I mean, why would a mask that supposedly can't stop a 20 nanometer COVID virus simultaneously be able to trap a 0.33 nanometer, car- 0.33 nanometer carbon dioxide molecule? Like those two things can't be true at the same time because mask. <laughs> it's too, the, it's, the virus is too small to be trapped by the mask, but the much smaller carbon dioxide molecules are. Right. You're going to suffocate. That virus is just going to slip right through. Right through. Critical thinking. Um, Well, that particular lack of critical thinking uh, has spawned this new phenomenon. And I need everybody to brace themselves because it's amazing. Uh, Turns out there is one thing that might cause these anti-maskers to wear a mask. And that thing is unsubstantiated fears about vaccines. What? Yep. There's one thing that's worse than masks, and it's vaccines. I don't get it. Yeah. So some people from this anti-mask crowd are beginning to wear masks to protect themselves, not from COVID-19 exactly, but from people who have received their COVID vaccine. Why? Well, there is a belief among some from this crowd that the COVID vaccine is causing people to shed proteins or the vaccine itself, or sorry, not the vaccine or the, uh, the virus itself. Mm. And that is causing, um, unvaccinated people to experience all sorts of symptoms, uh, primarily it's reproductive related. So irregular menstruation, infertility, miscarriages, those sorts of things. Uh, but as with all conspiracy theories around health or anything, basically just throw whatever symptoms suit you onto the list. That's probably caused by vaccine shedding too. Right. Um, so again, some of these people are even claiming that the vaccines are causing other people to shed the coronavirus itself. Now, quick definition, shedding means that the person is basically emanating literal pieces of the virus or the whole virus, either through exhalation in the breath or it's coming out of their pores or something like that. They just become radioactive pathogenic carriers. Right. I mean, and and that's kind of the function of like how you spread disease to other people. Yeah, right. In general. 
which is like, that's this, that's, that's why this is not a completely wild thought process. Um, it's, which really does play into why this is my favorite because I can see where it started. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to throw these people a bone here. And if you are listening, you have to promise me <laughs> that you are not going to take this out of context and listen to the, and you are going to listen to the rest of this episode. Cool. Cool. All right. So vaccines can cause the recipient of the vaccine to shed live viruses after receiving the vaccination. Okay. But, and this is a very, very big but, okay? Sir Mix-a-Lot saying about this but. Yeah. It's not every vaccine. And it's definitely not COVID vaccines. Post-vaccination virus shedding is only possible in cases where a version of the actual pathogen itself is introduced into your body. Something like an attenuated virus or very rarely an actual bacteria um, is modified to, to replicate in your body without making you sick. And this is, this is what causes your vaccine response. Uh, or your immune system response, or if it doesn't, if it does make you sick, it, it doesn't make you as sick as the actual pathogen itself would make you, um, and then that causes the immune system response. Because um, because this pathogen, you know, the virus or the bacteria, is actually replicating in your body, it can it can cause you to shed some some <laughs> amount of virus from your body. Um, because this is, this is a natural phenomenon that everybody goes through. This is how certain things get spread, as you said, right? Yeah. We do exhale. We do respirate some virus uh, whenever we have a virus. Uh, we do sweat sometimes and viral particles can come out. Technically, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Technically. However, and very importantly... There is very little, very little evidence that viral or bacterial vaccines can induce the level of shedding necessary for a vaccinated person to infect somebody else. So just because you're shedding doesn't mean you're shedding enough to get somebody sick. There are some situations where vaccine shedding can cause issues. Like you, there are a, a few, I think I found like four or five very, very, very specific situations where very specific conditions were met um, that could cause you to shed enough vaccine to get, or sorry, enough virus to get somebody else sick. But like, it's like the, one of them is the oral polio vaccine. It can cause enough shedding to transmit the disease. But like the highest, it's gross, but the highest concentration of the virus is in fecal matter, like it through the digestive tract um, uh, from the person who received the vaccine, which means that the primary route to infect others is poop. Yeah. Yeah. And like a fairly significant amount of it. Yeah. Like... Like not, oh, you didn't wash your hands good enough amounts. Well, that... uh, I'm not going to say that because that can technically be a way that that enough virus gets spread if somebody didn't 
wash after they clean themselves up and they then expose other people to it, you know, touch surfaces where it replicated. Right. That is but, technically possible. But like if you're if you're being exposed through this route, you got bigger problems in general. Right. Like to encounter that much. Yeah. It's it's a lot. It's, um Especially because, especially because we don't use the oral polio vaccine in the U.S. anymore. Like, well, if you got it that, that way, like, there's, there's an issue going on there. Yeah, I, I mean, like we are saying, the we all need to be exposed to a certain amount of a pathogen before we actually become sick. So, to keep things simple, if you encountered one cold virus, your body is likely going to destroy that virus before you suffer any effects at all from that virus. But if you encounter 10 virus particles, you're more likely to get sick. If you encounter 100, you're definitely going to get sick. And these are like arbitrary numbers, not actual medical thresholds. So don't try to Google that or use that to flex on anybody. We're just making up numbers because examples. We're just trying to illustrate that it's like a process that overwhelms your immune system that causes you to get sick. There's a threshold at which you just can't keep up. And the amount of shedding caused by live virus vaccines isn't just, it's not enough to overwhelm the typical immune system. If you have a suppressed immune system or something else going on, that's maybe a different case. But your average, relatively healthy adult, it's just not enough. Our listeners are probably way ahead of us here because they listened to that first episode that we did on COVID myths. And they know that none, none, not a single one, of the COVID vaccines are actual live virus vaccines, the ones that can cause this significant amount of shedding. So right off the bat, it's not looking great for the argument that these vaccines can cause those levels of viral shedding. Remember, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are mRNA technology, which we definitely talked about like in great detail in the last COVID myths episode. So go listen to that if you want to know what an mRNA vaccine is. The Johnson & Johnson, aka the Janssen vaccine, is a replication-defective adenovirus, which in standard American English means that the virus that is used in the vaccine can't reproduce. So it literally cannot cause you to generate enough virus to shed because it can't generate any more virus. All it does is deliver instructions to manufacture all of that important spike protein stuff to your cells in like a similar but not identical fashion to the mRNA vaccines. Yeah, so the mRNA vaccine is a chemical messenger uh, that tells your cells how to make the spike protein. The uh, adenovirus version, the Janssen vaccine, what it does is it basically takes um, an adenovirus, which is a, a virus. It's mm -hmm. a, something that can normally make you sick. They suck out all of the genetic instruction material yep. from the adenovirus and they inject the instructions to make this spike protein. And then they inject the adenovirus into you. The adenovirus does its thing and connects to your cells and delivers this now good information that makes you better <laughs> or protects right. you into your cells, which then causes them to make the spike protein, which then, you know, your immune system attacks and you're better, right? Right. Um, it's also very cool tech. It's it's just different. Yeah. Um, but again, important, importantly, none of this is actually making more coronavirus in your body for you to shed. Right. So there is a subset of the anti-vaccine crowd that says that 
the vaccines aren't really causing people to shed the virus, right? Uh, but they're actually, what they're actually shedding are certain proteins. Hmm. And then these proteins are what are causing the negative effects in other people. So they're getting around that sort of, oh, live virus causes vaccine shedding to, oh, this new tech causes uh, protein shedding. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's go down this trail. So technically, it does sound more possible because we talked about it. The vaccines, after all, they cause the human body to manufacture these all-important spike proteins. Right. Which allow the coronavirus to attach to your cell and inject their code. Um, but much like any sort of microchip that would be injected into your body, right, these spike proteins aren't just free-floating in your body once they're manufactured. Right. So once our little messenger soldier gets to camp and delivers these instructions for the, the, the manufacture of these spike proteins, um, those proteins migrate to the surface of the cell that they are in. And then they hang out their little fishing pole there, the protein itself, for your immune system, your white blood cells to target. The white blood cells, they target these proteins as they would a, a virus, right? And they go to work attacking them and then breaking them down. So that's the whole purpose of the immune system. Destroy the bad virus, destroy the bad proteins. The mRNA vaccines are degraded within like a day or two after they've been injected. And the J&J &J vaccine is similarly degraded in a pretty like quick window of time. I wasn't able to find the exact measure of it, but it's, it's also... I think within the the first couple of few days, um, they don't they don't really populate and move to other parts of the body. It's not like you get shot in the shoulder and then all of the cells in your body suddenly start manufacturing these proteins. That would actually kill you, yeah. <laughs> because your immune system is targeting these cells to destroy. Yeah. Uh, so no, it's just a, a a very localized amount of these cells that are being that are producing this protein, and then that protein and the cells that they are attached to are consequently being destroyed. Right. Your body's doing what it do. It's doing what it do. Um. So according to the world's largest biomedical research agency. <laughs> The National Institute of Health, right? <laughs> I wanted to put that they are, like, this is their job. That's their whole job. They are the people who do this. Um, the data that we have on the coronavirus vaccine at this time, they just do not support this idea of shedding at all. It's just, it's just not a thing. Okay, so I'm going to summarize, right? In summary, vaccine shedding is the term that is used to describe the release or the discharge of any of the vaccine components in or outside of the body. Vaccine shedding can only occur when a vaccine contains a weakened version of the actual virus, and none of the vaccines authorized for use in the United States contain a live virus. Not a one of them. Which means that we can draw a couple of conclusions from this. Primarily, if vaccine shedding isn't a thing, then problems with menstruation and fertility or miscarriages caused simply by being around vaccinated people also aren't a thing. There's no evidence to support that any type of problems are caused by being near people who have received the vaccine. In a similar way, 
there is no way for a person to transmit the vaccine itself to another person through shedding. None. This is a possibility through a new type of vaccine technology, but it has only been used in the wild and never ever on humans. The COVID vaccine is not spreadable. Here's what we do have evidence for though. The coronavirus itself, as in the actual illness COVID-19, can impact the menstrual cycle. A study in January 2021 found that in a sample size of 177 people with menstrual records, 25% of them reported menstrual volume changes and 28% recorded a cycle change. Primarily, they had lower volume and longer cycles, so getting sick with the actual virus can cause issues with your menstrual cycle. But the paper posited that these changes could be due to like sex hormones being suppressed during the illness, which quickly returns to normal levels after you recover. There are thousands of anecdotal claims about the impact of the vaccine on menstrual cycles literally all over social media. We talked about some of them last time. Mm -hmm. But to date, there have been no studies done on the impact of the vaccine on menstrual cycles. There are studies in the works as of the writing of this episode, but there are no results yet. However, there does not seem to be a mechanism for this vaccine to impact menstrual cycles. According to Dr. Miriam Loffer, Professor of Pediatrics, Medicine, Epidemiology, and Public Health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, she said, the vaccine does not impact the hormones that are responsible for a woman's menstrual cycle. Period. <laughs> oh my God. No pun intended. I'm leaving it in. Um, of course you are. There are, there are, however, reports in the Vaccine Averse Event Reporting System managed by the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration of menstrual changes. So if you have talked to an anti-vax conspiracist, <laughs> this particular tool has almost certainly come up as proof, mm -hmm. as proof that the government knows that vaccines cause anything from autism to cancer. Oh yeah. And so we want to talk about this for just a second here. First, it is, I'm throwing another bone here again, don't go crazy with this, keep it in context. It is no mystery that vaccines can cause adverse reactions. Vaccines are like any medication. Some people just aren't going to respond well to them. Every single one of us has a unique body that miraculously functions to give us existence. Sometimes a body is going to be just different enough to cause a problem for whatever reason. It could be because they have an underlying condition or it could just be because their body functions a little different. Medications are developed in a way that works best for the majority of users. And it's usually like a large majority. It's not like 51%. Right. It's like 95, 96% of people. Right. Um, and, and cause the cause problems for the smallest amount of people, right? So there are acceptable risk levels built into every single pill you've ever taken, mm -hmm. in, including ibuprofen. This isn't some conspiracy. It's just we don't live in a perfect world. We're all just a little different. 
and therefore there will never be any medication or any substance that absolutely 100% does not cause any negative effects in anyone. And I do mean any substance. There are people that are allergic to water. Yeah, they are. Seriously, they... <laughs> the thing that comprises 70% of our makeup, I think. Yeah. Yeah. People are allergic to that. So, yeah. luckily, thank God for them, or thank God for the world. It's very few people. Right. But still, it, the point is, it, it happens. So, theirs was established to allow tracking trends across populations to identify potential problems. It's, it's basically an early warning system. In fact, that's how they advertise themselves, right? Yeah. This is an early warning system. Very, very importantly, VAERS is not designed to detect if a vaccine caused an adverse event, but it can identify unusual or unexpected patterns of reporting that may indicate possible safety problems requiring a closer look, okay? The existence of data, quote-unquote, about an adverse reaction in VAERS does not mean that the vaccine caused the adverse reaction. Why? Well, because VAERS accepts reports from literally anyone. You, me, your grandmother, the person who has never typed a single word on a computer, they can all go on to this tool and report an adverse reaction from a vaccine. This is supposed to be patients and parents and caregivers and healthcare providers um, to report these things, right? But they're encouraged to report whatever happens, even if it's not clear that the vaccine caused the adverse event. So healthcare providers especially are actually required to report adverse events after vaccination. Again, but that, that doesn't mean that the vaccine caused it. Right. Okay? It could be like, if you went to McDonald's and you bought a Big Mac and you ate a Big Mac and then you left McDonald's and drove down the street and got hit by a train and died, that's an adverse event that happened after eating a Big Mac. But it's pretty unlikely that the Big Mac is what right. caused you to die. It was probably the train. And the Big Mac didn't cause the train. Okay, so it's the same sort of situation that can happen here. And these reports, they're used as a starting point for the investigation and nothing else. Yeah, I, I mean, it means that anybody can go and get their vaccine and then develop a headache and report that headache to VAERS. Or they can get a vaccine and then have a heavier than usual period or vaccinate their kid who then appears to suddenly develop autism. The report itself doesn't mean that any of those events were actually caused by the vaccine at all, just that someone both got a vaccine and had some sort of an adverse event. Now, naturally, this does cause selection bias because people who think that vaccines cause all sorts of problems are the most likely to think that their headache was caused by the vaccine that they just got, and then they're going to report it. The ensuing investigation is really what determines if the vaccine actually caused the negative event. And not everything warrants an investigation. So basically, you put in one of these reports, and if they decide that 
there's a high likelihood that you didn't get hit by a train because you ate a Big Mac, they're probably not going to investigate that. It's, it's a data gathering tool, and that's all it's intended to be. Now, there is also a very pernicious conspiracy that this vaccine causes infertility or spontaneous abortions. And we talked about this in detail in the last episode. But again, we just want to say that there is simply no known mechanism for the vaccine to affect fertility or to impact a pregnancy. To this point, the vaccines have been deemed safe for pregnant individuals. So far, among 3,958 participants enrolled in the V-Safe pregnancy registry, V-Safe is being used to track pregnant individuals who receive the vaccine. 827 of those had a completed pregnancy, of which 13.9% resulted in a pregnancy loss and 86.1% resulted in a live birth, mostly among participations with vaccination in the third trimester. Adverse neonatal outcomes included preterm birth in 9.4% and small size for gestational age in 3.2%, and no neonatal deaths were reported. These numbers by themselves sound bad, but the truth is, this is similar to incidences reported in studies involving pregnant women that were conducted before the COVID-19 pandemic. These are statistics that are consistent with what happens in pregnancy. There's no statistical difference in adverse effects between vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. The sobering reality is that a heartbreaking number of pregnancies end with the death of the child. The vaccine doesn't look to have any impact on that number according to the data that we have at this time. Right. And just for clarity, 3,958 participants were enrolled in this program. We said 827 had a completed pregnancy. That doesn't mean that the others didn't have a completed no, pregnancy. No, it they, just means that at the time of the results. Yeah, but they, but they weren't over yet. Right. They were still pregnant. Right. A, a pregnancy ends in one of two ways, and that's what was being reported. Right. And everyone else just, that hadn't happened yet. Yeah. I just, I, I don't <laughs> think we could be too clear on these things. Right. Um, because this is probably one of the scariest parts of this technology to people. It's new. People are so cautious about, about their babies, right? Yeah. And as they should be, that's, I'm like... Good. You, you, right. You're doing the right thing to, to, to try to protect them, right? Um, but the data doesn't support that this vaccine yeah. is anything that you have to worry about. So far, we have no reason to think that this is going to have a negative impact on you or the baby. Now, we keep saying so far. We keep saying the data so far. Right. We keep saying up to this point. When you talk about scientific matters, mm -hmm. things are continually evolving. This is not a problem with science. This is a feature. This is how right. science works. Yeah. You take every iteration of data that you get and you refine what you think and believe based on that data. Okay? So whenever guidance changes one month after the guidance had just been issued. <laughs> right. That's fine. That's just science working. Yeah. We got more information. We saw more of the picture. There's an old story or joke um, about four blind men and an elephant. 
and uh, I kind of give away the punchline, but like uh, these four blind men walk up to a creature that they can't identify. And one of them grabs it um, by the trunk and says, oh, this is a snake. And the other one grabs the leg and says, no, this is a tree, you idiot. And one of them grabs the tail and says, no, it's a rope. And then one of them grabs the ear and says, no, this is a palm frond, you know, something like that. Right. I may have missed that last one. Um, you know, but in reality, they're all just seeing part of the picture and it's actually an elephant. Yeah. Um, science operates kind of in a similar way. We're all <laughs> blind to the truth, the reality of the situation, and we're only seeing parts of it at a time. Now, as those blind men communicate and say, wait, I've got this big thing and it's it's shaped like a tree and feels like a tree, and they get more of the picture, then they start understanding the reality of the situation, and, and then they can determine how to react appropriately. Mm-hmm. But all we can do is take the data we have at this time and make the best decision based on that. So I th- I, a lot of people are getting or have been getting frustrated or were getting frustrated um, because guidance keeps changing. Numbers keep changing. You know, our projections on how deadly the virus was going to be kept changing over the time. And it's really easy to see that and say, oh, they're trying to cover something up. Mm-hmm. And the reality of the situation is they're just, we don't have all the data and they're making the best choice they have at that time, the best decision they can make. In a situation like this, you cannot wait until you have the whole picture. No. Because, you know, we have, we've lost almost 600,000 Americans now, millions across the globe. Yeah. If we hadn't done anything until we fully understood this, I mean, how much worse would it be? Look at, look at what's happening in India right now. Right. Imagine that on a global scale. It's just a short defense of the scientific method, right? Right. And in reality, we all operate like that every single day. If we had to have every piece of information about every single thing that was happening in our day, before we engaged in our day, we would never get out of bed. Right. You have to just operate with what you have at the time and do your best. And that is also how science works. And so... We say we have to trust science, but we also have to trust the scientific process. It's mm-hmm. not just the conclusions that we trust. It's that the people who are doing the work are doing it to the best of their ability with the intention of doing the best for everyone involved. Right. You just knocked something loose in my head that I want to address really quick. I have been seeing the term trust the science weaponized lately mm-hmm. um, from anti-COVID is bad people, right? <laughs> or the, the people who are like, COVID's not a big deal are now weaponizing the phrase trust the science against people uh, because the CDC has come out and said you don't have to wear a mask inside if you're vaccinated. You don't have to wear a mask outside. Like you're basically, basically able to go back to life as normal um, if you've been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But a lot of vaccinated people are choosing to continue these precautions like social distancing like wearing a mask and they're being attacked for it like you shouldn't you know trust the science what happened to that well what happened is you assholes have been spending an entire year plus now not doing anything right to prevent this the spread of this disease and now i can't trust the fact that the people who are sitting around me on this plane are vaccinated 
Right. And not carrying this. So of right. course I'm going to take precautions because you've been idiots for the last year. Right. And I'm, I know that's going to come off really harsh, especially if you've managed to listen to us this whole time, patiently explain these things and yeah. I'm getting to the end and I'm calling you an idiot. You're not, you have been stubborn and pigheaded and I will not apologize for that. Right. You've been misled by things that you have chosen to believe for whatever reason. Now that's human. And I, 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 get it. All right. Sometimes we choose to believe things we want to believe. But at this point in time, the arguments that this group of people are making are just, they're, they're more and more nonsense and less and less good faith, uh, question. Right. Um, we are like, we are butting right up on time and I know that we need to hurry, but, um, what you said actually triggered something in my head this time. Um, I have been hearing a lot that if you're vaccinated, it shouldn't matter if you're around unvaccinated people. And this is an argument that goes across all vaccines, right? Oh, my kid isn't vaccinated. How is there, how is, are they a danger to your kid who is vaccinated? With this particular vaccine, we do know that, that this is a best effort vaccine. This is what they could do to limit the risk to the majority of the population in the best way that they possibly could. We don't have longevity studies that tell us how long it's effective. We do know that it is technically possible to actually get infected with COVID, even if you have been vaccinated, because the purpose of this is to mitigate the chances that you're going to have severe disease, be hospitalized, and die. So some people who are vaccinated are continuing to choose to wear a mask and to social distance because we still don't have all the data yet. This is our best effort at moving forward and going forward with life in a way that feels functional, getting economies moving again, getting people back to work, bringing normalcy to our families, getting kids back in schools. But we know, especially those of us who have been following the development of this vaccine and this whole process, we know that this one's not going to be perfect. This is not a magic bullet. And this is my biggest complaint, actually, with Uh, both science communicators and political communicators throughout this whole process. They've been focused on the narrative because the narrative is what gets people to participate. The narrative has been stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home. So we followed that. And then it was just wait, the vaccine is coming. The vaccine is coming and life will go back to normal. And we've been so focused on these big high level stories that they've missed the opportunity to communicate about the scientific process. They've missed the opportunity to say, this is not going to be perfect. This is not going to be a magic bullet. We're doing our best. And I think that's where they're losing a lot of people in the gap yeah. is that, that this was touted as like, this is the chance for everything to return to normal. But the reality is most of us don't know, yeah. especially those of us who are paying attention don't know. Yeah. Just one minor clarification on that. Uh, very... <laughs> Very few, if any, vaccines are 100% effective. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like the the annual flu vaccine usually ranks somewhere in like the 60s, I think. Oh, 60% yeah. effective. and that's super That's high. really high. Yeah. Um, so the 95% plus effective rate in the real world of these mRNA vaccines is actually huge. Yeah. It's like even for best effort, like this is an amazing best effort. So don't doubt that. Right. But what that does mean is because it's not 100% effective and because you can get sick even after you've been vaccinated... Every time you're sick, the virus is replicating in your body. Every time the virus replicates, the chance for that virus to mutate and become worse or 
worst case scenario, mutate to a point where the vaccine no longer works on it and mm-hmm. restart this entire pandemic <laughs> increases. Yeah. That's why India is so scary right now. The, the, the human aspect of the massive death toll is heart-wrenching. The fact that so many people are getting sick should be very alarming yes. to anybody because yes. the more people that get sick from this, the higher the chance that the virus mutates enough to get around our defenses. Yeah. That's why these these things are important. Wearing a mask is important. It's still important. Yeah. Getting your, your vaccine. It is important. Um, and getting this under control globally. It is important. It is absolutely important. We got to wrap now. We do. Okay. We do. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. So... I'm going to do this shameless plug thing that we do every single week where we tell you that if you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it so greatly if you would leave us a review. There is a link to do that very conveniently, both on our social media and in the episode description for this particular episode, handy dandy tool called Rate My Podcast. You just click it and it does pretty much the rest for you. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can do that on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just search Fireside Breakdowns. You'll find us. Or if you're old-fashioned and you like sending mail, you can do that electronically. You can't send us a letter, but you could send us an email. And that is firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you if you have further questions about this, if you want to contradict one of our sources, if you would like to write us an essay about how valuable this podcast has been in your life. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Right. And I'm also going to take this opportunity to tease some upcoming changes to the Fireside brand. That's right. There are some pretty big changes coming down the pipe. And that is all I'm going to tell you. But doing that thing. they're awesome. And we spent all day yesterday working on a lot of it, a mm-hmm. lot of these changes, trying not to throw our computers out the window at certain times, yeah. which would have been very impressive because we were in a coffee shop and it was brick walls. But anyway, it was still tempting it was to try. Still tempting. Um, so please uh, stick around for that. As part of those changes, as we roll them out, we are going to be having a, uh, a review drive. So if you've been holding on to, uh, you know, if, you're, if you've been like, ah, I gotta leave a review for these people, I just keep forgetting. And I know for a fact that there is at least one of you out there (laughs) who is doing that because you have told me. Um, Now is the only time in the world that I am going to tell you, maybe hold on to it. If you want to leave us a review, we'd be grateful at any time. absolutely. Anytime. But maybe hold on to it for that drive. It should be coming down the pipe within hopefully the next month or so. Um, Because it would really help us. <laughs> to yes. have a, a basically just like a, a, a storm of great reviews to drive traffic uh, during this period of transition. And uh, yeah, so you've all got that to look forward to. Thank you so Absolutely. much for listening to us. Uh, so I'm going to give us some good news. Yes, please. Some COVID related good news uh, in keeping with the theme. For the first time since June of 2020, the United States is reporting fewer than 30,000 new COVID-19 cases daily. Infection rates have been dropping steadily for a month now due to the availability of vaccines to more and more Americans. And while that number still sounds incredibly high, and I remember when we broke the 30,000 cases a day mark and 
it was like, oh my gosh, this is so high. Right. It was such a bad deal. In perspective, uh, at one point we were seeing more than 200,000 daily cases. So that is huge. It is huge to get it back down to 30 and it is incredibly encouraging. Uh, so it just shows that these, these mitigation efforts and these, these technologies, they're actually working. So exactly, got to keep the good fight going. Keep it going. And as we close out this week's episode, we want to take a minute to acknowledge that this episode is going live on Memorial Day in the United States. That is a day that is dedicated to acknowledging and remembering the many military men and women who have given their lives in service of the United States. So to all of the families of those who have lost their lives in the line of duty, please accept our most heartfelt condolences and know that the sacrifices made were not made in vain. Part of the mission of this podcast is to bring Americans together on common ground to discuss the things that will make us better as people and as a nation. And we know that our work is made more possible by the men and women who are willing to put their lives on the line to preserve our freedoms. That's exactly right. Uh, we will endeavor to keep these uh, those who have lost their lives uh, in, our, in our thoughts and in our memories uh, today. So we will be back in one week. Uh, with another episode and we look forward to speaking with you then until that time take care of each other